All right, boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin there. You have your own translation. A place you can ask questions as well. For everyone else, it's printed for you in the bulletin. You can turn in your own Bibles there. You can pull out your smartphones and open up your apps if you want to. The ESV app is very good and it's free. I highly recommend it. We'll be finishing up the book of James today. So we'll be in James chapter 5, uh, looking at verses 7 through 20. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. <clears throat> now, Father God, we do thank you for your Word. We do thank you, Lord, for this uh, book of James, this letter to a real live church in the first century that was going through real life struggles that are very similar to ours. We thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to challenge us to be curt sometimes and to refuse to coddle sometimes, instead to speak severe mercy into our lives because we need it. Lord, we ask that you would do this by your Holy Spirit alone and that you would change us and make us more like Christ. Oh, Lord, empower the preaching of your word this morning to do your work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite authors, I guess writer, I like to go to occasionally, he writes novels, he writes essays, he does poetry. His name is Wendell Berry. And he is a farmer in Kentucky. He teaches at a university, and he's also a poet and a writer. And he does his best to teach, write, and to embody this appreciation for nature, especially for farming and for a rural life. He, he really wants people, he, and he's a Christian, he really wants people to have this connection to nature because that is the connection to God. That's one of the ways God has revealed Himself through natural revelation, through creation. And His beliefs force Him to not just be a poet, to not just be a teacher, to not just be a writer. He has to also be a farmer. His beliefs force Him to be a doer of His beliefs as well. And that is the whole point of the book of James, to be a doer of the Word, not a hearer only. As Christians, we should do life differently, James is trying to tell us. Doers of the Word, James told us, show the beauty of Jesus Christ to the world. Doers of the Word embody this beauty that Jesus is bringing with the gospel. We are a foretaste of the world that's coming. That's what it means to be a doer of the Word. Christians are connections to the world as it should be. That sounds very poetic and that sounds very nice. It's simply what the New Testament apostles meant when they would say they are called to proclaim the gospel. That's it. That's what the proclamation of the gospel means, that we are being a connection to the world that's coming. We are telling everybody, proclaiming that one day, someday, all this junk in the world, all this junk in us is going to be fixed. Don't you want to be part of that? That's the proclamation of the gospel. That is being a doer of the word. So here we are, the final words of this letter that James has written. This final, his final word on living in authentic Christianity, being a doer, not merely a hearer. This is written to a religious community, a community of Jewish Christians. So they're grounded in the Old Testament. They know their stuff. They know basic monotheism, which don't forget, in the ancient Roman world, monotheism was not only a minority position, it was weird. 
They didn't understand. Why would you believe in just one God? Now, here we are 2,000 years later of, of history where Christianity kind of won, so to speak, and so monotheism is kind of the default. And even for non-church people, the idea of people thinking of multiple gods seems weird. Well, they were in the exact opposite. They were weird for being monotheists. They were weird for all this other stuff they did. But they had this background in monotheism. They had this background in morality. So they were very religious people. And so adding in some Christianized information and ending up with a performance-based religion was very easy for them, as it is for us in a Christianized area of the country, in a Christianized community. And so James is basically saying in this last section, his last chance, he's saying either God is everything to you or He is nothing. Either God is everything to you or He is nothing. There is no middle ground. And that's where it gets sticky because as we've seen for the last four chapters, monsters try to live in the middle ground. And since we all have been, or perhaps continue to be, monsters even here in the church, we need to heed these final words from James. So if you would, would you look with me now at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. This is God's word to us. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes. And your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is God's Word. So here's where we're going to go today. I want to kind of give you the target we're shooting at, especially since it's the big text, and it's this. Monsters don't pray, and that's why they have no patience or friends. 
I'll say that again. Monsters don't pray. And that's why they have no patience or friends. See, as James walks us through this text, what we're going to see is that monsters don't live in patience, believe in prayer, or care for other people. Let's jump right into this. James tells us right off the bat, be patient. In what? Well, it's hard for us to remember because we've gone through this over a month and a half, but this was one letter read at one setting. And so they would immediately remember what happened in chapter 1. All the trials. He starts off saying, when you face all these trials, ask for wisdom. These are people in trial. And after everything we've seen over the last five chapters, we finally understand all this stuff about being doers of the word, not just hearers, not being monsters who are dead inside, but actually living out this authentic Christianity. All these trials he's talking about are taking place inside the church. James basically says at this point, look, since we're all monsters, be patient with other Christians. God's still working on us. Instead of looking at each other's faults, we should look at each other and remember that God is still working on us. And so we remember that world that's coming. See, this verse points out, because that world is coming, because Jesus is bringing that world, this is the community we should be now. We overlook each other's faults. We, we don't judge each other. We have steadfast patience when people let their inner monster show. And we are patient. We're preserving. We're not grumbling. All of those things. Anybody ever grumbled in church? James comes right out in verse 9 and says, don't do it. He just says, stop. Be patient and stop grumbling. And notice why he says to do this. He says, God the judge is close, and you may be just as guilty as the person you're grumbling about. Imagine how many church conflicts would go away if we just stopped when we were angry or upset or perturbed or offended or whatever. And we said, you know what? I may be just as guilty in this situation as the person I'm upset about. See, we all need that patience. That's what James is calling for, that kind of patience with each other. Why don't we see more patience in the church? Well, James has already told us. Practical atheism. Remember, he's summing up right here. Remember, practical atheism is when we confess all the right truths, we sing all the right songs, we attend all the right stuff, but Sunday afternoon through Saturday night, we live as if it doesn't ma matter at all in our life. It makes no difference. Practically, we are atheists. We don't, we're not verbally atheists. We're not, we may not even be atheists in our heart, what we actually believe, but how we live our lives, we are atheists. And that is showing itself in all these conflicts in the church, all these grumblings with each other, all this stuff. And so what he does is he's trying to finally sum it up for them. He goes to their cultural background. These are a bunch of Old Testament-saturated Jewish believers. So he, go, he talks about the Old Testament saints in verse 10. He says, man, look at all those prophets. They suffered and were still patient. And so, too, we should endure the junk of church world, just like they had to endure, endure the junk of church world. There's junk in church world. It happens. You are not the first, and you will not be the last believer to be hurt by a fellow believer. You are not the first, 
And you will not be the last believer to be hurt by a fellow believer. We need endurance and steadfastness and patience because there are monsters in the church. James basically tells us here in verse 10, the committed have always had to endure junk from the monsters in the church. Now, if you haven't been here in a while and you don't know what monsters are, we're going to get to that in a little while. Just hang with me. And then to these Old Testament people, talks about prophets, and then if you're going to talk about suffering, if you're going to talk about endurance, you're going to talk about patience, he goes right to where you have to go in the Old Testament, right? Look with me at verse 11. He goes right to the ultimate example. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James comes and he says, Hey, look at Job. He was steadfast in the worst of trials. They knew the story of Job. If you don't know the story of Job, the story of Job is very, very simple. The very beginning, Job is a very blessed man, has lots of stuff. Satan comes to God and says, well, yeah, you give him all the stuff. He doesn't really love you. He just likes the stuff. Take the stuff away, he will curse your name. God says, not Job. Job's my boy. Not going to happen. So God takes systematically all the stuff away from Job. Job's friends tell him to curse God and die. Job's wife tells him to curse God and die, and she does. But he doesn't. And at the end of it, Job is blessed even more than he was at the beginning of the story, beyond all measure. Why was Job blessed beyond all measure? This verse tells us why. Because God is compassionate and merciful. Literally, in the Greek, it says God is abundantly compassionate and tender. God wanted to bless Job. Job's endurance were the means to get him to that blessing, but the whole point was God wanted to bless Job because he's abundantly compassionate and tender. That's a fundamental issue. Do we believe that about God? Do we believe that God is exceedingly compassionate? That God is abundantly tender. Is that what we think of when we think of God? You see, monsters fundamentally don't believe God is passionate. Compassionate, excuse me. They don't believe God is compassionate. They don't believe He's tender. They don't believe He's passionate for His people. They don't believe that. See, and if we don't believe that God has the best in store for us, that a better world is coming, we will be monsters to each other. When things get difficult, when Christianity doesn't pay off, when we don't get the good life we think we deserve, our inner monster comes out. You see, if we doubt God's grace and compassion, but we're still kind of from a religious background, we fall back into thinking that it's all about our religious performance, about doing all the stuff of church. That's what zombies do. That's dead inside works with no real faith. It's just about ritual and belief. That's a monster. Or on the other side, when things aren't working out, those of us who are more theologically minded, we take refuge in having right beliefs, good theology. Well, at least better than their theology. 
We don't really do much, but we've got really good theology. We're a ghost. We have all faith and no works. We're a monster. And that's James has been talking about zombies and ghosts who separate faith and works, his whole book. And he's saying these monsters are destroying the church. Because anyone who separates faith and works, whether you do it all faith so you're a ghost or all works so you're a zombie, you're not resting in the grace of the gospel because monsters fundamentally don't believe the gospel. That's why they don't pray. When trials come, monsters lack endurance because they're not doers of the word. They don't ask for wisdom, as James says in chapter 1. They use their own selfish resources, or as he said in chapter 2, wisdom from below. And that makes the church conflicts even worse. See, James is calling on believers here in the midst of church in a broken world full of broken people to live in the gospel, to be doers of the word. To actually believe in the exceedingly compassionate grace of God for sinners. To believe that gospel. See, the question is, do we believe that? Not do we know that trivia information, but do we actually believe that in our heart? Do we live out of that foundation? Ultimately, what James is calling for here when he's talking about patience as verse 12 shows us, he's calling us to live in peace. The, the wholesome integrity of the gospel. Verse 12 is one of those famous verses, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We kind of miss what he's, what's going on here. Here's what's going on. About 10 years ago, I don't know why. You know how you kind of just pick up verbal habits and you do them? You have to listen to me week in and week out. You could probably tell me some verbal habits I have. But one of the things I was going, a verbal habit I had was I, I, I would pepper my speech with the phrase, to be honest with you. Blah, 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 blah. Well, to be honest with you, I think. And what that meant was, well, instead of being polite, can I be candid and maybe say something you might not want to hear, right? And I had someone point out to me, you know, when you say to be honest with you, you are indicating that the rest of the time you're not. And they, oh, oops, <laughs> derp, right? Let's not do that anymore. And that's exactly what James means in verse 12 when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Christians living out the gospel, especially during trials, should not have to swear or make promises. We shouldn't have to say, I promise. Christians should have such a strong integrity, because a, a, uni a unification of word and deed, of faith and works, being a doer of the word, so that Anytime you, that someone might want you to say, promise you'll do this, you don't have to. It's unnecessary because you're a doer of the word. Oh, they, they always do what they say. They don't have to promise. See, if we have to promise to shore up our truthfulness, we're actually admitting our speech is unreliable. And if our speech is unreliable, it means we are unreliable because we're separating faith and works. None of us believe lying is good, but if we do it, then we're separating what we do from what we believe. That makes us a monster. James is using that common example to say, no, put it together. Be integrated. Be wholesome. Or as the Bible calls it, live in peace. Shalom. This wholesomeness of being who you say you are. 
And he makes it based on our theology. If that world that Jesus Christ is bringing about in the gospel, this better world full of better people because he's making all things new, if that's coming, doers of that world, doers of the word, can patiently endure the junk of church conflicts because we know the people in this world, even in the church, are broken just like us. See, good theology rooted in God's compassion makes us compassionate. We can endure church conflict. We can endure trials instead of being a mash of grumbling monsters. That's the gospel-empowered patience he wants us to see in verses 7 through 12. And then he moves on in verses 13 through 18 to prayer. Here's where the struggle for patience is won or lost. Monsters don't pray. I mean, there's lip service prayers, sure, but there's not a fundamental conviction that prayer is the real work of a real faith. There's a joke that's told very often uh, in, around seminaries. It goes like this. Young minister at his first little solo pastor church, one of the older lady members is in the hospital. She's very ill. So he goes to the hospital visit, and he's, not, he's so new at ministry, he's not really sure what to do. He's kind of nervous, so he kind of just nervously chit-chats. And after like 20 minutes, she kind of looks at him like, um, well, will you do your thing? And he's like, well, what do you want me to do? She goes, well, pray for me. He goes, oh, okay, I can do that. What do you want me to pray for? And she's like, um, pray that I be healed. And he was like, oh, I'm Presbyterian, but okay, we'll, we'll try this. And so he prays for her to be healed, and all of a sudden she goes, it worked! She gets up out of bed, it worked! Thank you, and hugs him. And he's like, okay, I gotta go now. And he goes back to the car, he sits down, and he goes, don't you ever do that to me again! You see, real prayer is a connection to the powerful world that's coming. If we struggle to believe that reality that that beautiful world the gospel is making, we will struggle to pray based on that reality. We will struggle to pray believing something actually happens. James makes it so simple, though. Look at the first part of verse 13 with me. It's, I mean, you can't get more simple than this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. There you go. And I love how he doesn't just say sick, he says suffering. It's physical mental, emotional hardship. In those things, pray. And isn't it interesting that physical, mental, and emotional hardships are usually the things that happen from a church conflict? So what James is saying here is saying, look, in the midst of church conflicts, the way forward is not through stress and anxiety and worry and grumbling. It's through prayer. See, that grumbling in our heart that desire to find a real answer, not a churchy answer, is the voice of practical atheism. It says, man, don't pray. Do something. Go accomplish something. Do something real. You know, I was talking to a friend just this week uh, whose daughter is having health issues. And um, it's a long-distance friendship. So we were texting, and then we called, we spoke. And at the end of it, you know, his daughter's in the hospital getting tests. They're almost 1,000 miles away. And the only thing I could do was to say, man, I'll, I'll, he, was, he was at work, so he couldn't stop and me do it right then and pray for him on the phone. So I just said, I'll pray for you. And I will admit to you in my heart, it, it, it felt weak. It felt very churchy. It felt anything but powerful and real in that moment. 
See, that was the monster inside of me rising up. And so I repented because I had just been studying this passage in James. Because prayer is real and only my unbelief, my practical atheism doubts it. See, James is confronting that kind of unbelief in God's people. And that's what stops us from being doers of the word is this fundamental belief that it's not that powerful. It's not that real. I mean, you read us a crazy story about some soldiers having to escort Paul from one city to another. Ooh, that's really spiritual. But it is. God's word is living and active and powerful, and it does stuff. It's a means of grace. It's how God pours grace into us. But our unbelief doesn't believe that. And so when that monster rises inside of us, a doer of the word says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. James won't let up. It gets even crazier for our unbelief in verse 14. Look with me at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and then let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I have done this so many times. I know John Mark has done this so many times. We just did it for someone in this church about three weeks ago. Actually gathering the elders together. Actually laying our hands. Actually putting oil on them. And then actually believing that this is effective in some way. And we do that because we're called to. But I love how James puts this here because it's a complete frontal assault on our practical atheism. And you know how I know that? Because it confronts mine. This first verse forces me to confront my inner monster. Do I really think this is going to help? A bunch of guys putting their hands on someone? Just some olive oil? Really? And it's even bigger than we think. The word for sick here literally means weak, feeble, Needy. Anybody ever felt needy? Anybody ever felt feeble? James says, go to the elders and ask them to anoint you and pray. I'm not going to do that. That sounds weird. See, through the gospel Jesus has accomplished for us, he wants to heal our whole person. And so he has provided this means of healing through his church. I love how he says, don't go to the TV guy who's got this big old healing ministry. Go to the simple ordinary guys who you live with day in and day out called your elders because that's who I've chosen to work for, work through. I'm not really sure who these TV guys are working, but I'm working here because this is how I have ordained my church to work. I will work through the elders and heal you. So if you're struggling in your life, if you're needy, if you're weak, if you're feeble, man, depression, that qualifies. That pornography addiction, you're scared to death, someone's going to find out about. That qualifies. That anger you just can't let go of, that qualifies. Come to the session. We will anoint and pray for you. Did Pastor Sean just say go to the session and confess them that I can't stop looking at internet porn? Is he crazy? They'll judge me. No, we'll pray for you. And you could be healed of that. Or maybe that's too big of a step for you. James says, okay, no problem. How about verse 16? Pray for the believers that you know really well. Confess to one another. 
You know, when we were trying to decide what to call our small groups on Sunday night, we, we used 242 from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. But I really thought maybe we could use 516 from James 516. Because I can't think of a better verse for small groups than this. Confess your sins to one another that they might pray for you. You're not going to do that unless you know these people and you know them well and you trust them. If you read verse 16 and your heart says, man, I, I don't have anybody like that in my life I could do that to. Come to a 242 group and meet some. You can find those people. See, I love how James says here in verse 16 and then verse 17, trying to show us how powerful prayer is. He basically says, look, God's people at prayer are powerful. It all goes back to our belief in God being exceedingly compassionate. He wants to change the world, and he's chosen to use the church, empowered by the gospel, to change the world. And so he calls us to pray. He says the prayer of his righteous people is very effective if we only believe that. Here's one of the reasons we miss that is we miss the idea of healing, of God making things better with the gospel. We miss that. I'll give you a thought exercise. I want you to think of the miracles that Jesus did during his lifetime. Okay, maybe you know a few of them. There's a couple. He, 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 he did like he fed the 5,000 at one point. He fed 3,000 at another point with nothing. He, he, he healed the sick. He raised that guy from the dead. He raised a couple of people who were just about dead. He did some major miracles. And here's the question. Why? See, in our age of celebrity, in our age of, of PR and getting your name out there and marketing, we think, oh, well, that was ways to prove his deity so more people would know about him so they could share more of God's message. It's very effective. It proves his deity. It makes him more popular. No. Jesus calls us to be doers of the word, taking his healing to the nations. He is the word. And so as the word itself, when he confronted things that should not be in this world, he did something about it. Sickness should not be. Death should not be. Hunger should not be. And so Jesus was like, I'm doing something about it because I can And that's why he did the miracles. I mean, if you think about it from a PR perspective, his very first miracle ever was turning water into wine at some young redneck couple's wedding off in the sticks out in the middle of nowhere. No one heard about that. But that kind of dishonor that would happen at a covenant union when they ran out of wine should not be. Weddings reflect my relationship to my people. This is going to be a party. Best wine ever. Go. He confronted these things because he said that should not be because the world that's coming won't have them. See, when we get that picture of the gospel, that brokenness should not be, and so he calls us as a church to go do something about it, it changes the way we think of prayer, of ministry, of everything. See, James has a firm conviction that God will use Christians, his church, to fix these problems, these broken things in the world. And if we are rooted in that belief ourselves, if we are rooted in the belief that our prayers are effective, we will pray for God to do amazing things through his church by the gospel. Will we pray is the question. Because monsters don't pray. That's why they have no patience. And that's why they have no friends. So we'll end up by looking at people here in verses 19 and 20. The book of James has been all about people. 
conflicts and trials among God's people. Church members, ultimately, they have not been doers of the word because they don't believe the gospel. When you get a group of people together who know all the church stuff but who don't believe the gospel, you have a room full of monsters. And verse 19 tells us that monsters run people away from the church. All these trials and conflicts in this very real church he's writing to have caused some folk to leave. And I'm not talking about they just go down to the church down the street. But, but like so many in our community, so many in our entire country, they have become officially de-churched. Not unchurched, de-churched. Been there, done that, no thank you. See, these church conflicts have caused some people to walk away from the faith. I mean, this was the only church in town in the first century. Remember that. When they leave the church, they are leaving the faith. There's nowhere else to go. And so James instructs these people here to go after those de-churched people all around them. Here's how we put it for the kids. Boys and girls, I haven't forgotten you. Let's look at your uh, verses 19 and 20. Here's what James is telling them. Look, if one of you walks away from the gospel and is brought back, Whoever gets that sinner out of his error has brought him to new life in Christ. It's the last two verses of James' whole letter. Instead of focusing so much on the errors in the church of how this person does this this way, but I think it should be this way, and so we're going to fight. Instead of disagreements, doers of the word focus on sinners who don't know the truth. When we bring back such sinners from error, we have saved them from death because we are taking them to Jesus Christ who's conquered death, who forgives their sins and heals them. James ends his letter about church fights. How hard church fights are, how they bring out the worst in us, how we have to learn to love each other through them. James' last word on conflicts of the church is this. Look, stop complaining about each other and go do some evangelism. I can support that from the Greek if you want to take argue with me in these last two verses, but that's how he ends it. Stop complaining and go do some evangelism. Take the good news to wandering sinners. Because that's why Jesus came. We were all wandering from the truth. And God, in his extreme compassion, offers the life and death of his son to cover our sins. He heals us by anointing us in the blood of his son. The righteous one whose prayers are very effective. And then as those who've been made new in Jesus Christ, we patiently wait for that world coming, knowing that His grace is making us more and more beautiful every day. We refrain from complaining about our brothers and sisters because they're getting more beautiful too. We see that we're all works in progress who will be blessed one day, someday. That's the gospel of James. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we sum this up, I just want to challenge you. James, I think, would challenge you that a more profound Christianity awaits you. If we will repent of this practical atheism, we all harbor, we do. If we will repent of that monster that pops up inside of us, and if we will praise the Lord Jesus as the resurrected Savior every day, if we will focus on Him, we will become doers of the Word.
and through our effective prayers and our going out after de-churched sinners, we will see glimpses of that coming world in our day. Don't you want to be part of that kind of world coming? Then repent of this apathy about Christianity that so many of us are in. Embrace the identity of being a Christian. No longer going to say, I believe these things, but I don't do much. Or I do a lot of service work, but I don't believe much. No, I believe and I do because I identify as a Christian who Jesus is using to change the world. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Rest your life in the compassion of God that he has shown you through his son in the gospel. Let that empower you to love sinners and to go after them in Jesus' name. Let's pray together.